continuing on in Matthew. And uh, John has uh, been beheaded, John the Baptist. And uh, John's disciples have taken John's body. John had his followers. John had been baptizing people with a message of repentance, as you know, in the desert. And he had his following. And uh, they took his body and buried John. And then it says uh, at the end of uh, Matthew 14, verse 12, then they went and told Jesus. And uh, this is always the problem when we read the Bible, I think. You, you, it just says, then they went and told Jesus. They're, they're like leaders just lost his head. I think they would have been absolutely devastated. They'd have been absolutely broken. Um, I mean, that's, that's not just a death. That's a highly traumatic death. And, and all because John the Baptist called out the leader on his, on his immorality. So it's a warfare scenario too. And uh, Jesus, as you've everything that you read carries the burden so we read on at that point i just want us to understand that i mean this is tumultuous times um the 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 beheading of john the baptist is possibly i've not actually read this anywhere this this is my thought it's possibly to jesus the firing of the starting pistol of the final showdown as he's heading to the cross like the battle lines are clearly being drawn because you know in the first years of Jesus' life he kind of kept himself in the shadows and even at the beginning of his ministry you'll notice he kept trying to dive off into the shadows like he'd do a miracle and he'd go, don't tell anyone and then like disappear into the crowds but now things are getting hostile and things are opening up and so for Jesus to get the news from John's disciples they would have come to him I'm, I'm extrapolating here, I'm reading between the lines but I think you know, if, if you hear that someone's been executed unjustly and they're your leader, you'd probably be quite broken. So John the Baptist's disciples, they've probably got tears. They might not be able to speak properly. They're, they're upset. It's stressful and it all gets put on Jesus. And it says in verse 13, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. This is Matthew 14, verse 13. And wouldn't you just do that? That's, that's, if you ever had that, you just think, I just want to disappear somewhere. Or is that just me? Honestly, I don't like commuting, but sometimes getting in my car early doors, uh, sometimes I do actually breathe, I think. Just that little bit of space before I, I see my diary before the start of the day. I look at my diary at half five, quarter to six, and I think, ew. <laughs> and the left shoulder starts creeping up. And you think, oh. Then I get in my car and I put on a bit of a Pink Floyd and I suddenly feel well with the world. Um, funny that, need that little bit of time. But this is more than that. This is, this is end game starting pistol stuff. And not only that, we need to remember that Jesus and John the Baptist were born six months apart. And they were cousins. And they knew each other. 
And although it says in John's Gospel, John says, I didn't know him. What he means is I didn't know he was the Messiah. People misinterpret, it, misinterpret that. There's plenty of evidence in the Bible that they knew each other quite well. They knew each other by face. They knew each other by name. They, they, I, I imagine in Jewish culture, there was a lot of family jamborees taking place. They knew each other. So this is, this is gutting stuff. Lots of interaction. Their, their lives were kind of entwined in so many ways. So when Jesus heard what happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. And hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. It's like, go. What I'd, I'd be like, go away. Well, that's what I might be thinking inside. But I wouldn't say that necessarily because of pastoral faff moments. But you might want to think, just leave me alone. Have you ever had that? Even sometimes, you ever sat down for a meal and you just, and the doorbell goes. Who's not had that? Then you open the door and it's, you know, it's like, oh, hello. And you, you think, what do I do? Do I try and adopt the body posture of don't come in? Or have I got to be a good follower of Jesus? I'll leave you to answer that one. I think I know what you will do. Okay. Hearing of this, the crowns followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he got really chipped up and told them all to go away. No, he didn't. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. And Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. We, we have here only five loads of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. This is an en masse, like communion moment. Can you imagine what that was like? I wonder how, actually. I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible, I get questions in my head that I can't always seem to answer. Like, how did he direct thousands of people to sit down? Was he in an elevated position and he's doing this? Can you picture the, kind of picture the scene? And everyone's sort of, he's telling us to sit down. There'd be like a murmur among the crowd, wouldn't there? And then you can imagine like husbands and wives, husbands going, he's saying sit down. She goes, oh, just go home and get some food. <laughs> no, sit down. What do you mean sit down? What's going on? And then little John, sit down. I don't want to sit down. I'm hungry. <laughs> I need to go to the toilet. <laughs> so there's all that kicking off with thousands of people. I'm saying we, we, we read over this, but it would be an amazing scenario. And so there's probably like a murmur over the crowd, like a bit of noise, and everyone settles down. And then it feels to me, as I read it, like it was a bit of a majestic moment. Everyone's now looking. The murmur dies down. Thousands of people. And then Jesus looks over everyone. And then looks up to heaven. And breaks the bread. I think that would have been awesome I think it would have been a highly highly powerful moment all day there have been healings heaven has been manifesting itself and forget that 
This is not just like the, the five loaves miracle. All day there have been heavenly activity. Did you notice that? Like the stuff's been kicking off. Blind people have been healed. Lame people are walking again. Deaf people are hearing. People with skin diseases have been healed. The crowds are gathering. So it's like, it's a highly, highly powerful moment, actually. And he gave thanks and broke the loaves. And he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. And the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Now, one of the things I have wondered about is, as a little sideline is, did everyone who was present know about the miracle? I don't know, actually. Because I think if you're sitting there in a massive crowd of multiple thousands, maybe 15,000, 20,000 people, and food is coming to you, just like, oh, cheers, and you're eating it. Uh, um, maybe news was spreading through the crowd, maybe not. But it was definitely a sign to the disciples because they're looking at this thinking, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a bit Paul Daniels, isn't it? It's like, how, why? what is going on? And, and why go from healing lame people, blind people, deaf people, and then providing food? There is a significance to it, but it's an interesting one. So uh, for me, this is, a, this is a highly charged time. And uh, there's a few things that, to me, leapt out as I read it, which we'll try and navigate together. Remember what I said? I think Jesus was probably devastated and in load, had probably had loads of conflicting emotions going off. And his first response was to withdraw. Now, I sometimes want to run away or I find myself sitting on the edge of my bed, like getting in the early hours of the morning. No, I've got to get up again the next day. And I can find, my, sitting my, find myself sitting on the edge of the bed thinking... <laughs> I just want to go back to bed. Or I could just <laughs> I could just do with taking a bit of time out, going on my motorbike for a bit, or going for a cycle ride or something. That's actually not the reason why Jesus withdrew. He's not trying to withdraw because he's trying to do a runner. Jesus withdraws to lonely places often in the Bible, and I counted I just, not an exhaustive exercise, but I, I went through the Bible, New Testament, Gospels, trying to find how many times it says Jesus withdrew to quiet places or Jesus you know, went up into the mountainside, over 20 times like that. Just found these things very, very quickly. And it says, doesn't it, in Luke 5.15, it says Jesus often withdrew to lonely places. Why did he do it? Jesus did it because when he went away, all he wanted to do was commune with his father. He wanted to recalibrate and commune. I want to run away because I'm feeling selfish and chipped up. I'm going to go and ride my motorbike really fast in France and escape. But actually, that's not why Jesus did it. Jesus had a rhythm of doing it. And it's fascinating. And I tell you what, I, I felt a little bit convicted when I read it. Because I think, 
there are times when I do that and like, I practice it. So sometimes I don't put me Pink Floyd on the car. I always try and put me Audible Bible on in the morning. It's got a little Audible app. Have a little listen when I'm not on a motorbike and stuff like that. And you know, I do try and have our moments of prayer at work. And I've got my I've got an old Methodist hymn book on my desk at work, and I'm working my way through it because some of those old hymns are amazing. And I do have a little bit of time at my desk before it all kicks off. I just read a hymn and say a little prayer. And I've got our academy student pictures up on the left on my wall, and I pray for the academy students and look at the diary, pray a little bit about what's happening in the diary, and it's a little bit of a shambles, and sometimes I just sit there and think, I don't really say a lot. But Jesus did it intentionally to commune with his Father. And I've found the times that I've actually done that, it's been amazing. Now, some people are naturally lazier than others, being honest. We all have different capacities. I understand that in different energy levels. But some people have a natural lazy gene. And they don't need much of an excuse to say, you know, they hear me saying now, withdraw to a quiet place and spend some time with the Lord. And they're already doing that for 15 hours a week. They think, oh, I think I'll do that a little bit more. Cole's so right. My life's so stressful. I think I just need to lie down. I went to church this morning. I'm shattered. I'll just lie down. Now, there are some people who are naturally lazy. Let's just call it for what it is. It's just true. You don't need to do what I'm saying. You're already doing it. I'm talking to people, <laughs> I'm talking to people <laughs> who are rampant activists who don't pause. And there are loads of us here like that. There are loads of people who just don't stop. A little bit workaholic, a little bit on the ADHD spectrum, just always fidgeting about, always doing stuff and never stop. Let me tell you something. I'm like that, but it's the times when I stopped and moved on to lonely places where I've communed with Father most and he's spoken to me most. The most notable time recently, and I really need to look at my diary to try and do this again a little bit more, but when I was sensing that the Lord was calling me into a new season of ministry and I was coming out of one role into another, and uh, as usual, at full tilt, all self-inflicted and dashing about, um, I thought, I've, I've got to stop to pray about this. And I've got to go and seek some wise counsel. So I did. I put it in my diary, and, uh, and I, I set about praying and, and thinking about what God was saying to me. And then nothing particular happened when I did that on two half-day occasions. But immediately afterwards, it was startling. I went to one meeting with uh, Andy Hawthorne, who I worked with at The Message. And he said, oh, it's amazing. He said, we're having all these prophetic words about open doors. He says, it's a season of open doors for ministry. And I've had it three or four times. And he said, and I, he said you know, I really want to keep talking with you. It's before I work there. He said, because I just sense like you're one of these, like, there's an open door for us to work together. I went, oh, it's, Great, you know. Now, now I'd just come out of my like little prayer time sort of season a few weeks before. And then um, I went and preached at a church in Barking about two weeks later. And I preached my heart out in a morning service. And I think I might have told you this before, but it was like one of my top ten sermons, if I could categorize it like that, humanly speaking. I thought, you know, you get off the, you're coming to the end, the closing line. I thought, smashed it. 
bit bit fleshy, but I went, smash that. That was that was a good one. Yeah, I hope I, I think I'll take the uh, recording of that one. So anyway, I thought I'm um, definitely definitely bunch of people are going to get saved. So I made a gospel appeal and nothing happened. <laughs> it's just like the Lord saying, check you out. Anyway, <laughs> so nothing happened and I couldn't work it out. I thought, like, literally amazing. <laughs> I thought it's an amazing sermon. <laughs> nothing happened. Anyway, I had a coffee break and the uh, pastor said to me, yeah, that was a great preach car, very, very powerful. And I went, mm-hmm. So anyway, rolled out and normally second service in back-to-back meetings in a large church you've ironed out all your mistakes in the first one most people don't notice them but like you you know the different points you i've got to correct that so the second one was like blistering i mean it was it was next level if it had been in wembley it had gone global it was amazing that's what i thought in my flesh i thought i smashed it so anyway i came to the appeal and i thought this is gonna kick off now it's gonna be a revival in barking so I did me a pill. This is how I felt. I'm flowing. And I felt on fire, actually. I'm like, come on. So I did this gospel appeal and nothing happened. So I can't believe it. So I got off the stage all dejected. And then this guy with obvious special needs, clear special needs, came over to me and sort of just stood in my face, looking at me. I went, hello. He went, and he just went like this. He looks at me and he pointed and he went, Open doors, open doors. There's an open door for effective ministry over your life. Take the open door. It's an open door. There's an open door. There's an open door. There's a very open door for ministry in your life. Open door. And walked off. I thought, wow. That's a shiver down the spine moment. Came out of my time of prayer seat. So I take myself away to God speak. Just need to commune with you, God. Not in the right place. I need you to speak to me. And sitting there listening to the Lord. But in three weeks, that happens. But it's still not enough. So about two weeks after that, I'm speaking at something else. And this guy comes up to me. And I, I, I'm speaking at a conference, actually. I'm in, this, in the big coffee area. And uh, this guy comes up to me and he says, um, touched me on the shoulder and he said, excuse me, um, Carl Beach here. And I went, oh, yeah, yeah, hi, mate. He said, I don't, I don't want to disturb you. He said, but um, I painted you a picture. I went, did you, mate? I went, yeah. He said, no, I'm a bit embarrassed, but I want to give it to you. I went, do you? He went, yeah. He said, can you come with me? And I went, you're all right, mate. So that doesn't happen to me a lot. People don't come up to me, you know, offering me paintings. And uh, when I went, it's not, it's not. He said, I'm not a painter. He said, but I felt the Lord tell me to paint you a painting. He said, you're going to see Carl Beach at this conference paint a painting. Seriously. Painted a picture of an open door. <laughs> I thought, it's that, how amazing is that? Why did Jesus, who draw to lonely places, because he communed with his father, he got direction, heard from heaven. So do you do that? You build in time for that in your busy life. Get up early. Take yourself away. Maybe building a rhythm that a couple of times a year, no matter how busy you are, what job you do, you, you can do that. Now, you might say, it's right for you, Cole. You're a minister. No, I'm not. I'm actually a charity director. I'm, I'm busting hours. I've organized days. I'm, I'm an eight to sixer guy. You know, I've off, an office and staff to run. I'm not, I'm not 
I don't have that rhythm in my diary. My diary doesn't allow for it, so I have to build it in. I'm like you. I have to build that in. I've got other stuff kicking off. But you've got to find the time to do it. Jesus did it for a reason. People rarely get balanced on this, but if you're a person carrying pressure, I would say individually, as a couple, as a team, try and build it in. And I'm just sitting there over the last couple of days thinking, goodness me, you know, I'm getting to a stage now where um, like my kids are not kids, they're young ladies, they're going to be you know, shooting off wherever, doing their thing. If there's ever a time that Karen and I need to actually build that into our lives much more intentionally, no excuse, we've got to find that rhythm. No matter how old you are, young you are, what circumstance you're in, it's where God speaks to us. I think it's so important. And another little interesting thing that, that really spoke to me as I looked at this was it's fascinating to me in the Bible how many times these things happen in the wilderness places. Like this feeding of the 5,000 was in a wild, desolate place. Jesus was tested by the devil in a desert place. But he's also where he was filled with the power, the miracle, Jinami's power, the Holy Spirit in a desert place. Moses in Midian encounters God. John the Baptist preached repentance in the desert. David hid in the desert and re-strengthened himself. Nebuchadnezzar surrendered to God in a wild place. Job's life changed in the wild. Abraham's life changed in the desert. I could go on. It's a really interesting thing. And I was saying to God in my prayers, Wait, what does that mean? And it was this little whisper, and it's a very subjective thought, really. But it's a little whisper to me from God to say, sometimes in life you have wilderness seasons. You, you can feel like you're in the desert, and that doesn't feel like a great place, right? But you know what? You might think you're alone in the desert, but the Bible tells me that God is always present in the desert. It's always there in the wilderness. You've just got to listen to him. And sometimes you've got to intentionally take yourself there. And sometimes life throws you a curveball and you find yourself there. And it might be that you are feeling like that this morning. And I do simply want to encourage you under God to say, you might think you're alone. But in the Bible, we are never alone. God is always very, very present in the wilderness places. If only we navigate that properly and reach out to him, then I think we'll find him. But then, of course, the inevitable happens. Jesus is trying to run away, and then everyone follows him in the story. And uh, he doesn't get all chippy and weird about it and shut the door on people. He has compassion and heals the sick. And we're talking hundreds and thousands of people here. And that, that, is, that is, to me, quite remarkable. He is grieving. He is humanly probably traumatized his cousin has been beheaded he takes himself away to commune with his father and what happens us lot mob him and that's what we would do but he has compassion and he heals people it, it strikes me that jesus always seemed to have time for people Always had time. You know, he's in the midst of a crowd and he'll bend down and talk to a little kid or, you know, he's been hustled along and someone touches him and he feels power and he talks to a woman that everyone would have deemed unclean because she was bleeding and all of that stuff. Always seemed to have time for people. 
which is actually what all this is all about. So much of life, actually, in fact, nearly all of life, boils down to relationships. Most of our trauma comes out of relationships. Most of our most exciting moments come out of relationships. This whole thing is about a relationship with God, and it's not always easy relationships, but it seems to me that Jesus always had time for people, and not only people just like him. In a church, there will be instinctively people who are like you, that you instantly commune with. Then there will be people that you don't instantly commune with. And actually, that is your kingdom challenge. Your kingdom challenge is to make friends with people and spend time with people who are not simply like you. That's one of the greatest challenges of the kingdom, actually. And it's an exciting one, because when you do get to know people who are not instinctively like you, sometimes you find out all sorts of weird and wonderful things about people. And it's amazing, and some of my best friends now are not people who are instinctively like me, which is a beautiful thing, actually. And I think that's what it's all about underneath everything. It's relationships. So I wonder what our equivalent is um, of, of Jesus being mobbed unhelpfully by people. And uh, I typed out a little list. Um, maybe it's opening your home, but in an unplanned way. Like you can tick the box of hospitality by hosting a group or something or a pre-planned dinner party. But how different would it be if we actually lived more communally and opened our lives? Opened our doors up a bit. Now you've got to work out what that means. But if we had a permanent sense of welcome, with boundaries, so you don't go nuts, but you had a permanent sense of welcome about you, what an amazing challenge it would be if each of us had dined with each other at some point over the next few years. Well, I think that's a good challenge. I mean, you know, if you don't cook, get a Chinese in. It's an excuse for a pizza. And like when Karen says to me, well, we can't do another takeaway. He says, it's community, sweetheart. We've got to do it. Take the, take the stress off. Maybe it's being prepared to be inconvenienced. Jesus, it strikes me, is always prepared to be inconvenienced by people because he loved people. The driving thing is here, he had compassion. I just, I just, I just find that a challenge. And I would say that Karen and I ebb and flow on this. We can be really good at opening our home. And uh, we can, and we can be really good at pre-planned meetings and mass hospitality and all that kind of stuff. And we're also very good at uh, closing the gates and putting steel shutters over the windows and hiding on the floor and pretending we're not there. <laughs> Never done that? You know what I'm saying? Because you're tired. And that's where you do need the boundaries, but I think it's a challenge to have that sense of welcome. And certainly in the past, we've, um, and to an extent now, had a had a seasons where it was always unexpected who was going to be in my house when I got home or and and do you know what that's the times when we saw the miraculous and they were the most sacred times we've ever had I would say so it's a it's a challenge to us all 
The next thing we see here in this passage as we meander our way through it, and I've not got a whole bunch more to say, but I think what we do see here is obviously, and you cannot look at this passage without mentioning this, the miraculous Jehovah Jireh provision of God. And, and it is a, an absolutely startling thing. And you see this again all through the Bible, don't you? Manna in the desert for the Israelites. Uh, is there's echoes of Elijah and the widow, Elisha feeding the 100. Isaiah spoke of food for those who can't afford it in Isaiah 55. There's just loads of stuff about the provision of God in, in the Bible. And, uh, and I, I could go on and on about that from, a, you know, quoting you loads of verses, but I think the most important thing is to say, um, when we step out for God, he always provides. And I've never known him not to. Um, going, going back uh, to the early days of starting out when we had emptied our bank account and to, we left the bank and we were just passionate about telling people about Jesus and we spent a few years really without a salary, you know, and... Um, I was I was remembering with Karen uh, yesterday how there was a time once when we were it was getting a little bit tight to say the least and a little bit you know stressful and wondering where the food was going to come from type level and uh, we did come home once and find a whole bunch of shopping on our doorstep and it's like wow like honestly like when you get to that level and you go home and someone's left a load of Sainsbury's bags on your doorstep or Tesco or whatever it was at the time, it was quite a few years ago, you think, God's really got us. Like, you felt, it was like millionaire type provision, you're like, we're loaded because of all this shopping. It was amazing. And I remember another time, I was uh, commuting to, I was planting a church and commuting to Bible college twice a week from Essex to South London. It was like two hours each way. So I'd go on a Wednesday morning at six, come back in the evening to run a youth group, then go again on Thursday morning at six, then come back and run a home group. And then I was planting the church the rest of the week. And it was very expensive, even though petrol was like, must have been like 30p back then or something stupid. Um, it's still very expensive when you've got no money. And I was paying for the Bible college fees. And I was getting a bit desperate, you know, um, this is like the pre before we got to the no food level and I was a little bit desperate about it and then the treasurer from the big congregation up the road asked for a meeting to discuss my finances and I was like we're getting in he's going to give us some money we're going to be loaded it's going to be brilliant anyway he sat down with me in my little study and he said we met in the eldership so I was like uh, planting this little church down the road he said we met in the eldership and um, very concerned to be providing for you because you know you're not getting paid. And he said, um, you go across the Dartford Toll, don't you? You go through the Dartford Crossing twice a week. I went, yeah, I do, yeah. He said, well, we've voted to pay your Dartford Toll <laughs> every month. And I was like, yay. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, <laughs> so, thanks a lot. No, but what? <laughs> Actually, do you know what the weird thing was? Actually, at the time, I felt really grateful. I did, actually. That's £20 a month. That's £20 a month. That's like a lot of money. It's funny how when 
God reduces you, how the little things become a blessing. The simple things become a blessing again. There's something sad, actually, when in our culture, the simple things cease to be a blessing. But to actually put yourself on the edge like that, you, you experience God's provision in, in quite remarkable ways. And that simple little bit of bread, bit of fish, people are satisfied. There's something simplistically beautiful about this story, actually. They've been healed and fed. And, and I wonder, too, a little side thought, how sacred it was that they were in community like that when they did it. Actually sharing that meal together with, with, with the Lord there. Now, I am... I am um, not good at this. I, I do like a chilled out TV dinner. I've got to be honest. Life can be so busy. Sometimes I just want to sit back in front of the TV and watch nothing. Just like and eat food like a zombie. Uh, now some of you will be shocked and horrified about that lack of middle class discipline in my life. But I am from Essex. And I... And I Sometimes I just want to sit there and go, and shovel food in and watch complete and utter junk on the TV and not commune with anybody and pretend that I'm with my family by making them do the same thing. Karen, on the other hand, is a proper godly person and likes us to sit around the dinner table. It can be so annoying sometimes. And I think, I just want to put my feet up and not talk to anyone because I'm so tired shoveling the pasta. But Karen will say, we're going to sit around the table together. And we do. And I would contend that my girls are quite entertaining company. And uh, we have interesting conversations around the table. But when I look back at the times we have sat around the table like that, they have been some of the most precious times. And I think they're like me deathbed memory times, actually, girls. I'd be like dying one day and I think, oh, I remember Karen made me sit around a table for me spag bowl and me daughters were there. <laughs> 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 like sacred memories. I'd like to think I'd throw in another statement like, tell everyone about Jesus, Emily and Annie, <laughs> before I do that. But anyway, they're sacred times. Communing together as people yeah, are sacred moments. That, that is one of the reasons why we try and do communion like we do. And it's not everyone's cup of tea, I get that. But actually want to commune with each other. Pray with each other. Bless one another. Get to know one another. Eat meals together. Share times together. In the presence of God. I think it's hugely sacred and there's a significance behind this story in that too. And finally, I think theologically there's something quite remarkable here. Um, did a little bit of map research. I do like me maps and stats. And this miracle took place on the western side of the River Jordan in Jewish territory. And I think, you know, is it where it flows into the Sea of Galilee, and I think that's very significant. 
I think that's Jesus saying, I'm with you here, Jewish people. I'm here for you and I will provide for you. And I will save you here. I think it was a sign. And I don't think you can ignore the fact there were 12 baskets. God's very mathematical. I think it's representative of the 12 tribes. I think that's why that happened there. But in chapter 15, if you cheat, he does the same for 4,000. And some people say, why did they repeat the story? Because it was in a different place. The next time he did it, it was in Gentile territory. And he was saying, actually, I'm going to provide for the world. I'll do it here and I'll minister there. I'll do miracles for the Jews. I'll do miracles for the Gentiles. That's massive back in that time. So we mustn't miss that. Underneath all of this is also a rescue story of I will provide for the world in Matthew 14 and 15. That's a massive, powerful sign to us all. I'm here for everybody. I'm here for all of you. No matter who you are, your backgrounds, I'm here for all of you. Amazing.